0: I don't want her to lose her spot now. All right. Well, thank you guys. I'm really excited to be here today. And uh, if I had known, you know, that I could have just brought that same message, uh, but okay, here we are. Uh, and yeah, we were in uh, we were in Slidell, Louisiana, which I tell folks all the time. If you uh, if you've ever gone from Dallas uh, to the beach at Destin. Or if you've ever driven to Disney World, you drove right past us. Because uh, as you take either I-10 or I-12, you have to go right by us to keep on going over towards Florida. And so we had five good years there in Slidell. Um, We're praying for them this weekend because it seems like every time a storm comes through or a rain event, either the waters push in from the Gulf or the rivers rise. And today, uh, there's a lot of folks we love and care about down there who's, uh, Whose homes are in peril yet again, as the rivers are rising, and I don't even know all the reasons why this time. They just are. So keep those folks in your prayers, if you would please, uh, down in South Louisiana today. But uh, yeah, in Colombia, we um, we lived in a really nice condo in a city of a million people. <laughs> you know, people hear Colombia and they're like, "Wow," you know. Um, but I did. I worked with indigenous people. And so most of the people I worked with lived out from the city. Some of them lived up in the mountains and in communities of homes that looked exactly like those homes would have looked 500 years ago. And they dress exactly like they dressed 500 years ago. And the sad thing is they believe the same thing that their ancestors believed 500 years ago about the spirit world and good and evil and all these things. And so the Lord gave us a really special ministry there. For three years, I never had to take my family. You people here, Columbia, and they—they they remember the movies from the 1980s, and they read the things they read in the paper and the drug trade and all that. But our family was very. Uh, the Lord took care of us there. We were never in any sort of a danger. Our city was. Our city is a was a tourist attraction city, and so we had a greater police and military presence in our city than a lot of places had there. So we were in a really. Uh, good place there, and the Lord allowed me to go out from there uh, to some interesting places uh, to to work with those indigenous people. But then he called us home, and here we are. And I just appreciate the opportunity to, to share with you today. Are you watching the Olympics? Is anyone watching the Olympics? Yeah? When I think about the Olympics, one of my most vivid memories is something that was more related to the Winter Olympics, Uh, In fact, it was, uh, goodness, I don't have the exact date here. Yeah, dude, January 6, 1994. Do you remember where you were January 6, 1994? Probably not. Well, on January the 6th, 1904, an Olympic figure skater named Nancy Kerrigan was just practicing like she would on any other normal practice day. And that particular day, a man ran out onto the ice with a either a pipe or a wrench, I believe it was a pipe, and he goes over where she's practicing and just clubs her in the knee, ending her shot at, or so they presumed at that time, ending her shot at the Olympics. And if you remember the image of her sitting on the uh, ice. Clutching her knee with this anguish on her face. Do you remember what word she kept repeating over and over and over again? Why? There she sits. I can still picture it holding this knee. I don't remember which one it was. Uh, and just with this anguished look on her face. Why? 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 Now, I hope none of you have ever been clubbed on the knee with a pipe, but I imagine most of you, many of you, if not all of us, have been at a place and a time in our lives at one point or another where we have asked that often unanswered question the same way she was that morning. Why? Why? It's one of the first questions we learn in life, isn't it? Don't do that. Why? Because I said no. Why? Because I said so, but why? Why? It's one of the first questions we learn, and when we find ourselves on the receiving end of difficult circumstances, receiving end of tragedy, receiving end of, of temptations or trials, we find ourselves like Nancy Kerrigan sometimes asking this question why? So open your Bibles, please, this morning to James. I like James. James is really practical. James's letter is about helping Christians to live like Christians. He wants the readers to grow in our faith, in our understanding, in our knowledge, and in our spiritual maturity. And so he begins this letter with some instruction on the subject that we can all relate to. He begins with the subject of trials. His original readers were Christians who had just been scattered because of persecution that was taking place in Jerusalem uh, after Stephen had been martyred. Right? And so they were scattering and so they understood trials. Now theirs were obviously very different than ours. We live in very different times than they did. Your trials are different than mine, and mine are different than yours, and yours are different than your next door's neighbor's, but we all know what it means to face trials. And we've all at some point or another asked the question, why? And so I'm going to ask you please to stand this morning in the honor of the reading of God's Word, and I'm going to read aloud James 1 beginning in verse 1, and I'm just reading this morning down through chapter, uh, excuse me, through verse 4. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I pray, God, that you would speak to us through it this morning, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated, please. So in answering this question, why, with regard to life's trials, James gives us some principles here this morning, God's purposes in allowing us to go through them. And I'm just going to give you these principles this morning kind of in a bullet point format, and I think it might be in your handout if you've got one this morning. And the first principle is this, trials are expected events in the lives of believers. Trials are to be expected events in the lives of believers. You see here in verse 2, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. When. Now my translation calls them various uh, trials of various kinds. Yours may say various trials. If you still have a King James, it would say diverse temptations. Okay? Because the word James uses here could be temptations that come to us from the outside, I mean, or from the inside. It could be a temptation, the same word is used for both. The inner moral test like Jesus went through in, in the desert, uh, that's the same word here that James is using here. But he's talking here about those external trials. He's not talking necessarily about temptation to sin. He's talking about those trials that come from to us from outside side, difficulties and tragedies that, you know, they don't begin in our hearts, they don't begin in that remnant of the old man, that's just things that happen in life that cause us to want to react really poorly. And he says, you count it all joy when you fall into various trials, or meet trials of various kinds, this translation says, when, and it could be even translated whenever. So don't mistake the word when for the word if. James does not say, count it all joy if you fall into trials or if you happen to fall into trials. If one day you're just moving along, minding your own business. And oh, such that rarely happens in this world, you encounter some sort of trial or difficulty. It might happen. No, James doesn't say it that way at all. It's not if. He says, when. Folks, any Christian who believes that life is supposed to be easy just because we're believers is going to be in for a shock. All right? This is one of the challenges that we face with this prosperity message, this prosperity theology that it's growing here in the United States, but it's not just growing here in the United States. It has been exported from the United States, and it is growing all over the world. And it's this idea that if you come to Jesus Christ all of your physical needs are going to always be met, and not only that, but if you have enough faith, you'll never get sick, and you're going to enjoy financial wealth and financial prosperity. And this message, guys, it's it's permeating the, the southern church, South America, and Africa. And so pray, pray for the sound doctrine in these places. Um, because there's this whole idea that if you're in Christ. It's going to all be great all the time. Folks, the Bible just simply doesn't teach us that. Over in John chapter 16, when Jesus was preparing his apostles and uh, teaching them about the Holy Spirit who was to come in the kingdom of God and future events, he was trying to get them to see the bigger picture. In John 16 verse 33, he says, These things I have spoken to you that you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulations. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world, Jesus said. He said, you will have. So what's the difference between a Christian? It's not that there's tribulation or not tribulation. It's, he says, be of good cheer. You're in me and I've already overcome this. I've overcome the world. He wants them to have the inner peace, even though in this life he knew they would face difficult trials and circumstances. Now we know there is a day coming, hallelujah. Hallelujah. There is a day coming, there will be no more death, no more sickness, no more sorrow. We get a glimpse of that in the end of Revelation. This day is coming, but folks, that day is not yet here. And so, in the meantime, we face trials of many kinds. Count it all joy, my brothers, win you meet trials of many kinds. Paul and Barnabas understood this in Acts chapter 14. It says, verse 22, They returned to the cities of Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying to them, this is Acts chapter 14, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Paul and Barnabas wanted the believers to stand firm in their faith, not in the absence of trials and difficulties, but in spite of their trials and difficulties. And so for Jesus and for Paul and for Barnabas and here and for James, it was simply understood. It was a foregone conclusion. Trials are expected events in the lives of believers. All right, so I said a minute ago, all of ours are different. Mine aren't going to look exactly like yours. Yours aren't going to look exactly like mine. You don't want mine. I don't want yours. We understand this about each other but we're not going to be shocked, we're not going to be surprised, we're not going to wonder, oh where's God in all this? Where's God in all this? He's right there. He's been there all along. The trials don't indicate his absence, all right? So let me just show you one more thing here. This idea here of various kinds, or in, in my translation here where he says, yeah, various kinds, or diverse, the King James says, diverse temptations, It gives the picture here of being completely surrounded by them, like they're everywhere you look, right? When you face trials of various kinds, it doesn't mean one day you're going to face this kind, and it's going to go away. And the next day, you'll face this trial. And then when it finally goes away or gets better, then you might face this trial. The the language that James was using here gives this picture of being completely enveloped in trials and difficult circumstances. Uh, and folks, this could mean that you're facing illness in the family, trouble at work, financial burden, broken relationships, other things, but not in succession, but this could mean all at the same time is what James is saying. Don't be surprised when these things happen at once. Can you guys not attest to that? I mean, just kind of do a, I won't even say a 20-year glance through your memory. Do a five-year glance through your memory. Think about how you're like, okay, I can get through this, and then the next day, here's another one. All right, I can get through these, and the next day, here comes another one. All right, God, we're going to get through these three things, and then boom. You're like, okay, Lord. James says, this is expected in the life of believers. We expect it. As long as we live in a world that is fallen and plagued by sin, these trials and persecutions, they're a fact of life. They may come suddenly sometimes. We may not always be prepared for them, but we should never be surprised by them because they're expected events. He says when, when you fall or when you face trials of various kinds. So expected events. Here's the second thing about them. Trials serve particular purposes in the lives of believers. That's about as alliterated as I can do. You know, I know some preachers do great with all the P words or all the S words. That's all I got, particular purposes. Trials serve particular purposes in the lives of believers. Look at verses uh, 3 and 4. He says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking, lacking in, in nothing. Okay, so I just want to show you it real briefly here. First thing, trials prove our faith. Verse 3, he says, for you know that the testing of your faith. Trials prove our faith. He refers to it as a testing. He uses the form of the word that referred to coinage, sterling coinage metal that was genuine and contained no imperfections, contained no allies. God wants our faith to be genuine. He wants it to be pure and so he puts it to the test. Right? If you're playing in the water's edge of a river and you came across some hard shiny stuff that you thought might be gold, before you would go and spend um, hundreds of thousands of dollars buying mineral rights building a mine, building a, you know, infrastructure to support this, find you just, before you would do any of that, you would first take this little shiny rock to go be tested to see if it was really pure gold, wouldn't you? Sure you would. You'd take it to be assayed, the assayer. He might hold it out over a blazing hot fire, your little rock. He wants to test its properties to see if it's really gold. So he'll take that chunk and he'll hold it over blazing hot fire and then he'll take another little piece of your rock and he'll pour acid all over it. And when he'd finished it putting putting it through all of those trials, he would say whether your little rock was genuine gold or just a shiny little rock you happened to find on the water's edge. But you would want to know first that it was genuine. And in much the same way the trials we encounter in our lives test our faith they prove that our faith is genuine do I really believe what I say I believe or am I just talk do I really trust God trust God to supply all of my needs do I really believe that he only acts for his glory and my good Do I really believe these things? Do I really believe he sees the bigger picture and he knows the beginning from the end? Do I really believe he has my long-term best interests and my long-term completion and sanctification and spiritual maturity in mind? Do I really believe these things and continue to trust him even when nothing else makes sense? Do I keep trusting when the why questions seem to go unanswered? Folks, in this way, our trials help test our faith to prove if it's genuine, if we really believe the things we say we believe. Or do we just give lip service to faith because we think we're supposed to? Our trials and tests will prove the authenticity of our confession. We don't have to live through persecution here in the United States the way some believers do in some cultures they understand this firsthand. They know all too well how tests and trials prove the authenticity of our confession. Because when you say Jesus is Lord, it's to say, and nothing and no one else is. And our trials prove whether we mean that or not. So why is it important that our faith be proven? Over two centuries ago, a pastor named Thomas Manton said it well. He said, of all the graces, Satan especially hates faith. Of all the graces God delights in, faith is perfection. See, from the time God called Abraham into a relationship with himself, he has been calling people to live by faith. Going all the way back to Abraham, God has put those, that faith to the test. Right? Right? God doesn't test our faith because he's mean or because he's arbitrary or because he's wrong or because he's incapable of doing anything but good. No, he puts our faith to the test because he knows those trials will prove whether or not our confession is genuine or if it's just empty religious speech. So they prove our faith. Secondly, they produce perseverance. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And so I say they produce perseverance, right? You notice these kind of build on each other, right? Because your trials aren't going to produce perseverance unless your faith has been tested and proved to be the genuine article. And the grammar in verse 3 here indicates what A.T. Robertson called a genuine element in our faith. This this says steadfastness. Uh, New King James says perseverance. King James says patience. I'm not sure what your translation might have. Uh, It's the genuine element in our faith that produces perseverance. And so the trials put our faith to the test to prove it's genuine so then that once it has been tested and proven genuine, it produces perseverance in the believer's life. Now, some of it may say patience, and if it says patience, like if you've got a King James that says patience, just remember this, in the Bible, patience is never passive. Just keep that in mind. Anytime you encounter the word patience in the Bible, just remember that patience is never passive. It's never passive. It's never just waiting for life to happen. God has put me in some interesting places. He put me in New Orleans, and then he put me in Cartagena, Colombia. And what these two places have in common more than anything in the world is that in both of these places, there are a lot of people who are content to just sit there and let life happen to them. You know, I don't know if it's the, some of the, ancient cultural similarities they have in common I don't know whether it's the heat and humidity in both of the places I don't know but in both of these places there's people who are content you're like yeah I don't have any money I don't have a job what are you doing oh, I'm just kind of sitting on the porch today talking to my friend Bill okay all right yeah well you get oh you know I guess when I'm when I'm really out of money I'll go work a day or two and I'll get a little bit they're just content to kind of just sit there and let life go right on by you know life just kind of happens to you when the Bible talks about patience, that's not a picture of biblical patience. Biblical patience is perseverance. It's stick-to-itiveness. Y'all remember that? I don't even know if that's a real word. I don't know. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, standing firm in the midst of something. That's what James has in view here when he says it produces steadfastness or perseverance. If your translation says patience, that's what it's talking about. Standing firm in the midst of the trials or staying power. Right, holding tight to our convictions and remaining steadfast in our belief in God and in His goodness and in His purposes and in His providence in spite of life's trials and tribulations. Folks, that's perseverance. That's patience in the biblical sense of the word. You know what? Yes, this stinks. It's okay to say that you know it's okay to admit that to yourself what i'm going through right now not literally but i'm i'm kind of speaking figuratively here you can say you this is this isn't fun cancer's not fun car accidents losing family house fires these things aren't fun no one enjoys them so it's okay to say this stinks i'm not enjoying this lord but i trust you that's perseverance i trust you when everything else says i shouldn't I trust you. That's what I think of when I think of Joseph in the Old Testament. Hated by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, wrongfully accused, imprisoned, forgotten about by a friend, but he never lost his faith. He persevered in his faith and it was his perseverant, genuine faith that ultimately God used to put him in a position to bless his people who were still all the way back in Canaan. See, Joseph got something we don't always get. Joseph got to see in hindsight what God had been doing all along. You won't always get that. I wish I could tell you that you would. I wish I could tell you one day you will look back and you will perfectly understand. What? Well, one day you will. Okay, but not not in this lifetime. But Joseph got that, and sometimes you will. Joseph did. He was able to look backwards and see what God had been doing. Always see that while you're going through them, especially. Right? He was years later before he saw the bigger picture and realized what God had been doing all along. But it was the tested, genuine article of his faith that produced the perseverance that made him the person that God would use to impact history. So when you're in the midst of the trials in your life, you can either throw up your hands as if God doesn't care, or you can persevere standing firm, continuing to trust, in spite of all of the things that don't make sense to your human brain. That's perseverance. He wants our faith to be the genuine article. He wants us to be firm in that faith, perseverance. And so he allows the trials to prove our faith that produce the perseverance. That's too many Ps. Produce the faith. To prove the faith that produces perseverance. all right. And then the final thing that tests our faith, they produce perseverance and they promote spiritual mat- maturity. Promote spiritual maturity. Because you look here down at verse 4 and he says, let steadfastness or perseverance have its full effect. Your translation may say perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking, lacking in nothing. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Your translation may say mature. I like that. Trials prove genuine faith, which in the face of trials produces perseverance, which, according to Scripture, perseverance then leads us to be mature. It's a finished task. The translated word, the word that's translated there gives these, the idea of a finished task or a person having become fully grown. Has less to do with perfection in the sense that, you know, you hear sometimes some uh, some denominations will speak of it, the belief that you can achieve sinless perfection in this lifetime. It's not so much that kind of a thing. It's talking more about just the sense of being fully grown to maturity. And he says, you face these trials; they prove your faith, they promote perseverance. And once that happens, once that work is done, once God accomplishes this work in and through you, you grow to f- spiritual maturity. That's what he's talking about in verse 4. Let patience finish its work so that you can be mature and complete. And he says this, lacking nothing. Now, you know, we're obviously not talking about physical maturity. He's talking about spiritual maturity. When he says lacking nothing, he's not talking about having... All of the money in the world you could ever hope to have. That's not what he's mean. He's talking about spiritual maturity, spiritual gifts, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our trials, our difficulties, the problems we face in our life, rightly faced with genuine faith and perseverance, he uses to help us, grow us in spiritual maturity. This sounds so controversial, or, or, or excuse me, uh, sometimes the English words still don't come. Uh, it just sounds backwards to conventional wisdom, the, the world's conventional wisdom, doesn't it? It just sounds backwards. Wait, God's going to use the bad stuff to make me something good? It just seems backwards. Job's three friends, y'all know the story of Job, right? We always read chapters one and two. And we kind of stop there, you know? Uh, but his three friends, the, rest, the majority of the rest of the book are these long speeches by his three buddies, who for him represent what the world will so often tell you when you're facing trials and circumstances. What did you do wrong? God must be really mad at you because you know God's good God's good, and he he wouldn't be letting you go through this unless you must you must have done something really bad that you don't even remember right now i'm I'm being kind of silly, but that was the gist of the three speeches or the the, 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 the speeches of the three friends throughout job's story. This is conventional wisdom this is the world's conventional wisdom. Oh well, if you're going through some difficulty you must have done something wrong. You know, because God's good, and he wouldn't let you go through that unless you did something bad. You know, that's the mindset, right? But you know what? The fact of the matter, Job's three friends were wrong. They were just wrong. They couldn't see the greater purpose. They didn't know what God had planned. They didn't know what God had in store. Of course, neither did Job. Now, unlike Joseph, Job never got to look backwards and see what God had been doing all along. God eventually restored him. God eventually blessed him beyond what he could have imagined. But Job eventually died, having never, to our knowledge, had never read or heard about the conversation between Satan and Job, chapter one. You know, Job died, presumably never knowing what we call chapter one. So sometimes like Joseph, you'll get to look backwards and you'll understand. Sometimes like Job, you just have to accept God is who he says he is and he's going to always do the best and he's going to always do right and he's going to always glorify himself. And you you keep trusting him in spite of it all. So sometimes Joseph, sometimes Job. Consider that God spent 25 years working on Abraham before he sent him his son of promise. Now you're going to have Isaac 25 years later. You be, would you be tempted to give up? Maybe let go of that promise after 25 years? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Joseph went through 13 years of proving before God was ready to use him as a part of his plan. 13 years earlier, he'd been an immature young man, flaunting his status as his father's favorite. Now he's fully grown physically and spiritually mature. His faith has been proved. Now he was ready to be used by God. And it was not until after Joseph's trials and after his perseverance that we see the ultimate evidence of his spiritual maturity that had developed during that 13-year process. Genesis 50, 20, I know you know this verse, right? He says to his brothers, For you, as for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people. But he went through 13 years of junk to get to that point. But, folks, that is the perspective of spiritual maturity. And it doesn't happen overnight, and it seldom comes easily. Joseph grew to that point over 13 years of trials and tests and injustices, quite frankly. From a human standpoint, they were injustices. So I can't say it emphatically enough. They serve our trials, serve God's purposes, they prove our faith, and they produce perseverance, and they promote spiritual maturity. God uses them to bring us along in this process of sanctification. So as we grow to be and look and think more like Christ every single day, he uses our trials as a part of that process. And folks, in God's economy, there is no such thing as pointless suffering. There's no such thing. All right, and then very quickly, I'll just I lose track of time sometimes. I'm a talker. Um, the final principle then I want you to see this morning is this. The trials should produce a right response uh, from believers. I might have in your notes, in the lives of believers, but from us. Our trials should produce from us a right response towards God. Now look back up to verse 2. How does he begin this whole letter? Count it all joy, my brothers, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. James says that we are to consider it joy when we encounter these things. And you're sitting there going, cancer, job loss, some other illness, death in the family, wayward children, perhaps wayward grandchildren. I don't know what's, like I said, everybody's is different I don't know what you're going through today, but you're th- they're thinking, joy? I want you to notice, James doesn't say happiness. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. Happiness comes from happenstance, right? Happiness has more to do with an emotion or a circumstance. What is joy? Joy is an evidence of the fruit of the presence of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, kindness, long-suffering, kindness, and self-control. Did I say kindness twice? I think I did. Oops. Joy is, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Joy is evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence and activity in the life of a believer. Joy is not circumstantial. Right? So he says, count it all joy. You can have a genuine Spirit-filled, Christ-centered, God-honoring joy even in the midst of these circumstances that you're not particularly happy about on a daily basis. You can still have biblical joy. You can respond to Him appropriately. And you know how one evidence of this, when you're going through this, you're going, am I responding to this? Is my life uh, exhibiting joy? Is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Is it bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Can you still worship? And this is just, you know, this isn't biblical. This is just me now. Can you still worship? When you're in the midst of it all, does worship bring you closer to God? Does worship bring you to tears? Does worship give you that moment of respite? Then you're responding to him with joy. You're still loving him for who he is and all that he's done for you in Christ Jesus. That's joy. When you need to be concerned is when you can't, when you can't worship, when you can't pray, when you don't want to hear his name. Because that's when you're responding the way the world would respond and not the way a believer would respond. You see what I'm saying? I'm not trying to like put anybody down or anything. I'm just saying just a little self-test when you're in the midst of it all. Can I still worship? Am I still worshiping? All right. Happiness, joy, joy is the evidence of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, even when I'm not too happy about the circumstance. Our trials are an opportunity to rejoice, are they not? To rejoice in the Lord. To rejoice in His sovereignty, in His Word, in His promises, in the hope that is within you because He is within you. All right? Folks, God prunes and he has been pruning and he has been proving and he's been doing this since the founding of the church, pruning and proving. He tests your faith to see if it's the genuine article, not because he's arbitrary, but because he wants you to persevere and he wants you to be a spiritually mature disciple of Christ. And so you and I, we can look upon our trials with joy because we know that we serve a God who sees the end from the beginning and that he has a plan even when we can't see it. Jeremiah says a plan to prosper you and not to harm you, a plan to give you a hope and a future. Even when you can't see it, he has a plan. So in closing, let me just encourage you to think about your trials and your hardships in terms of the birth of, of a giraffe. Alright? What? What do they teach at Baylor? I, I didn't study her, I studied psychology, So, excuse me. When a calf is born, it falls several feet, some estimates are as many as 10 depending on the size of the mother. 3 to 10 feet. The baby calf just falls 6, 8, 10 feet to the ground and lands squarely on its back. And after a moment, the mother of the newborn giraffe comes over. It's on its back. She comes over and she kicks it head over heels. And if it doesn't get up, she kicks it again. This is the mother. And she she keeps kicking at it until it finally stands up. And once the little baby giraffe is up, and it's shaking on its wobbly legs, the mother comes over, and all the love she can muster, she kicks it again. (laughs) But see, what might sound, sound cruel and even unnecessary to an onlooker, it's an important moment in the life of the baby giraffe because it helps the baby giraffe develop the instincts and the skills that it needs to move rapidly with the herd when the predators are present. Folks, sometimes you may feel like the baby giraffe. You might feel like you have just gotten back up to your feet and you've just gotten things back on track when all of a sudden here comes another blow knocking you back down again. The next time you find yourself surrounded by trials on every side, like James says, and it doesn't seem like they were lent, and the only question that comes to your mind is why, the next time you find yourself there, think about the baby giraffe, whose mother loves it more than it realizes in that moment. Think about the baby giraffe whose mother loves it more than it could possibly fathom in that difficult moment and rejoice rejoice knowing that one who is greater than ourselves will use the experience to test us and to prove us and to teach us perseverance and to mature us just like joseph said in order to bring it about as it is this day and so as spirit indwelled believers in christ jesus let us it's not easy and i can't tell you i do it perfectly Right. Sometimes preachers act like you know, do what I do. I, this is not. I don't do this perfectly, but this is this is our goal as believers, right? When we find ourselves in these moments, surrounded by trials on all sides that just won't seem to relent, as spirit indwelled believers in Christ Jesus, we can rejoice in the midst of the trials because He is sovereign, and His. Purposes are perfect. Even when you can't see the end from the beginning, he can. So close your eyes and do all you can and rejoice. He's in control. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you so much for uh, James and for writing this letter God, we know the folks he was writing to were facing circumstances very different than our own. They were running, some of them, for their very lives. And, Lord, we we know ours aren't exactly like that. But, God, we know that your word is timeless. We know it never returns void. We know it's absolutely as applicable today as it has ever been. And so, God, I pray we would take James' letter to heart that we would not be surprised. We will not be surprised when we face trials on all sides. Lord, that we would recognize that you use them to test our faith, to prove our faith, so that it's the genuine article. Lord, because ultimately we want our faith to be the genuine article. We want it to be the real deal because we want to be spiritually mature. And so, Father, I just pray you'd give us perseverance, make our faith strong in these moments when we can not fall back on anything other than your promises. And Lord, we thank you that you have indwelled us by your Holy Spirit and your very presence is with us every single day. So that we may continue to rejoice, and we may continue to worship, even when it doesn't make sense to the world. So I pray, God, in the power of the Holy Spirit, thank you for uh, your presence with us here today. I pray, God, you would equip us and use us to serve you. And even when we're not going through trials ourselves, that we would reflect your grace and your goodness to those who are. And Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name.